0: This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Um, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you are good. Your steadfast love endures forever and your faithfulness to each generation. We pray, O Lord, that you would come and speak with us this day, that you would open our hearts to hear your word, that we might hold within ourselves the bright sadness of this Lenten season. Sharing, yes, in grief, but not grieving like others do who have no hope, but grieving as those who hope ultimately in you. We pray that the reality of your promises might be made real and true in our lives this day. We pray in Christ's name, amen. Um, have you ever felt two emotions at once? <clears throat> Same time? It's kind of hard to do. I usually don't. Uh, I'm not that much of an emotional mess most of the time, but sometimes I feel more than one emotion at, at once. I remember graduating from high school. Uh, anybody done that before? Um, yeah, so once or twice. <laughs> yeah. So I remember the buildup. You know, this was such a significant moment. In many ways, it's kind of like a rite of passage of sorts. Um, in some families, in some places in our society, and so I remember, you know, teachers making a big deal about this and being a big deal in our family and being really excited about it, Um, but I also remember being sad because I recognized I was also saying goodbye to a lot of friends that I had known since I was really young and were such a huge and influential part of my life. I remember being joyful, excited, but also sad and a little worried about what was going to come next. Maybe you can remember feeling something similar at some point. Um, I remember <clears throat> uh, I, you had a loved one die where you felt both sorrow and, and maybe joy. Um, I was in Germany. I'd never really been out of the country before. And I was in seminary and we took a trip, uh, sort of sort of a mission trip, but mainly a learning trip to to Germany and got to go to some places that were significant in the history of the church and uh, I remember this was before it was particularly easy to just have an internet on the the way or a cell phone that worked outside of the US so I remember going to the internet cafe in the hotel where we were staying we had a break and it was like midweek and so I thought I would send some messages and that sort of thing and I got I, I got on Facebook and saw that my uncle had posted that my grandfather had died. And it was, you know, it was sudden, it was unexpected, and here I am reading this really odd message like, wait a second, you know, is this really happening? And so I immediately felt, you know, the shock of that, but also just sadness and grief. And, um, and I went back up to my room. I was sort of numb, and then uh, I began to cry. But at the same time, like, I was... I was truly happy. It was an odd thing, an odd experience. And that's how I would have scripted it at all. But I remember feeling sadness, but also gratitude. And I remember saying, thank you, Lord. Uh, Grandpa had this degenerative disease that continued to sort of eat away at his muscles and at his strength. And um, so he he had his share of suffering and uh, this really um, quick uh, death where he passed from that suffering into glory. And indeed, it it was a blessing. Um, so I, I remember that experience. Um, you know, there's a hymn we sing when I surveyed the wondrous cross. And, and one of the lines in there says that when you look at the cross, you'll see sorrow and love flowing, mingled down. Right? I mean, you see, look at the cross, and there's, there's the Savior suffering. It's not good. Um, sometimes we, th- we talk about the cross, and so we get used to it. And a couple weeks ago, Dave at the early service was saying, you know, I think we don't really get the cross much. It was sort of like saying, it's like having an electric chair up front. Like, this was a- an instrument of execution, you know? And here we are talking about the cross all the time, and I don't think we get it. I was like, you're probably right. <laughs> you know, we probably don't. Like, here's this terrible thing. And yet, at the same time, it is our greatest joy, Because there is our freedom. There is the one who has died for us that we might live. There's the one who conquers death through his death. So we can look at it and we can be sorrowful, but we can also see the love of God revealed for us when we look upon it. More than one emotion at once. You know, that's kind of like Lent. We're in the second week of Lent, this penitential season, and you may already be thinking, good grief, like I'm trying to cut back on X, Y, or Z. I'm trying to deny myself. I'm trying to struggle with my own ego so that Christ might rule in my life. I'm, I'm really, I'm, in, I'm trying to enter into this, but it's just been a week and here I am frustrated already. Uh, it's been a week and it is not fun to sing in minor keys all the time. You know, it is not fun to, to think about penitence, about repentance, to meditate on the fact that I'm sinful, that I don't get everything right, that I do wrong things. Like I'd much rather just ignore that or move forward or be distracted. But here we are wrestling with this season which is intentionally sorrowful. The monks will talk about receiving the gift of tears at a certain point. And the gift of tears is like this interior cleansing and washing the tears of which are are a sign of. Um, And so sometimes we receive the gift of tears Thinking and meditating upon our own sin. And yeah, that's a bit of a downer, isn't it? And yet also within Lent, there's one of the emotions, yeah? But also within Lent, there is this brightness, this hopefulness, this joy. Because it's a 40-day season, and we know the telos, the end goal of this time. Which is, after 40 days, what are we going to celebrate? Easter, the resurrection, new life, Christ's victory, our participation in it. And so, yes, we see sadness, but we're also able to look ahead to the light of Jesus, which shines upon us from a distance, and we're receiving it more and more, so that Lent, the classic kind of description of this season, is a bright sadness. Can you begin to try to hold those two things together in you for the next few weeks. A bright sadness. A sadness that is bright. A brightness that it also is sad. That's the title of the sermon, again. I'm, get, I'm getting pretty good at these things. I'm just nailing down the main point I'm trying to make in the title. <laughs> I had a professor who loved titles, and he wrote a series of articles for different publications and the one title I remember most was A Chest Hair Named Fred. <laughs> I'll send you the article if I can find it. It's hilarious. It's about his son discovering his first chest hair. <laughs> yeah, it had a good ending. <clears throat> My titles aren't to that level yet, are they? I got, I'm struggling here, but I got a goal to shoot for, right? Yeah. So we're in the midst of this season, which is both sad but also bright. And our scripture readings contain both of those things today. I don't know if you noticed it. Yes, there is uh, Jesus looking at Jerusalem, hearing that Herod wants to kill him, looking to Jerusalem and lamenting that the place where heaven and earth come together, the place where the temple is, the place where all God's people come and God has promised to meet the people there, is the place where people reject God, kill the prophets, and refuse not only those God's sins, but also won't even be gathered under God's wings. The central place is the place where you can see most clearly that people have rejected God. Jesus laments the reality of this. There's sadness. There's a real grief there. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. There's Paul. Paul who struggles within himself for that promise that lies ahead in Christ. He says, I'm going to forget everything which is is behind and I'm going to wrestle, I'm going to struggle, looking ahead towards the goal. He's in the middle of the sadness, the, the difficulty, the hard part of self-denial, um, of taking up one's cross, but he's also looking ahead and he sees the weight of glory that is promised. There's both of those things there. And of course, the psalm speaks of God as our salvation and as our light, the light that shines, the brightness is God. God. And within that promise and that hope is the fact that God has made a covenant and has promised by himself that out of the death of these these living creatures, God has passed into a new reality in which now um, he is going to work all things together for our good, that we might be drawn into his life. You see the brightness and the sadness in our readings. You see the struggle and you see the hope and victory in our readings. And what I want to give you this morning, beginning to recognize that this is a time of bright sadness, um, is a prayer that you can begin to pray. Hopefully every day, from now to the end of the Lent. It's short. Maybe you pray it once a day. Uh, But I would encourage you to do this. Take a picture on your phone if that's easier. Take I've, I've included it as an insert, your bulletin. Take it with you. Put it on the dash of your car. Put it on your bathroom uh, mirror. Place it beside your bed. Pray it in the morning when you wake up. Pray it in the middle of the day. And then pray it in the evening before you go to bed. That's my invitation. To pray it three times a day. To pray this prayer. <clears throat> um, it is a prayer from Ephraim the Syrian. Who is from Syria. And lived in the 4th century. And was a hymn writer. And he wrote this uh, incredible poetry. He wrote, he wrote uh, theology as poetry and poetry as theology. And he has these hymns that bring together para, uh, paradox and, and uh, things that you, you don't think you could hold together, like sadness and joy. Right? He's really good at this. And sometimes you'll read it and it just blows your mind how Jesus brings together all opposites in himself. He's the highest of the high, and, and he also goes to the lowest point of the low. Right? He is both the Holy One of God, but he's also crucified outside the city gates uh, where, um, like the scapegoat was sent out to the trash heap. But He brings all of that together. He, he, he knows no sin, and yet he who knows no sin was made sin on our behalf. Like all these things, he can hold a bright sadness within him. And Ephraim is really good at laying these things out. And so he has this prayer, which uh, I have a little prayer book, and I'll come in here in the mornings, and, uh, and I'll stand right here, and I pray these prayers in the morning, and this is the last, the last bit of the prayer, almost, before the end. And in the prayer book, it's only supposed to be prayed during Lent, but I realized when I first encountered it that I think I need to pray this all the time, and so I have been. And so the prayer... Um, it says, uh, Lord and Master of my life, take from me a spirit of sloth, idle curiosity, love of power, and useless chatter. Rather, accord to me, your servant, a spirit of uh, chastity, humility, patience, and love. Yes, Lord and King, grant that I may see my own sin and not condemn my brother and sister. For blessed are you forever and ever. Amen. That's the Lenten prayer. It's the prayer that has been prayed since the 4th century and is like the chief prayer in the worship services of the church. Um, It summarizes and condenses so much and so what I want us to do this morning is to to kind of work through it. It asks to take four things away and to gift four things to us. And you'll notice that there's a, a bright sadness within this prayer. The things that we lament and that we ask to be taken from us are the things that bring what? Sin and destruction into the world. Sloth, idle curiosity, love of power, and useless chatter. And the brightness is the things that we ask God to gift us. Um, chastity, humility, patience, and love. These are the things that bring God's light into the world. And so my hope is that as you continue through Lent, you'll be able to go a little deeper in this prayer. And we're going to break down some of it a little bit so that you get a, a start on how to spend some time with it. Um, but I think this could change your lint. If you had not picked anything up yet, if you haven't set anything down, here it is. It's just typed out for you. It'd take 30 seconds for you, right, to pray this prayer. Um, so here's an invitation. Let's think about it. <clears throat> Let us think about the things we're asking God to take, the things that Christ laments. Let's think about sloth. When you hear sloth, what, do you, what, what comes to mind? Legitimate question. Lazy, Lazy, slow. Yeah, so, yes, exactly. Um, so this is funny. Uh, one of the reasons that I felt like I need to pray this prayer, you have just encountered sloth. Um, sloth is not only, and not primarily actually, laziness. That's, that's, what, that's how we use that word. But as a, as a category... of of vice, Uh, sloth is not doing the thing needed, not doing the thing most necessary. Um, It is instead getting distracted, and that's my life. Um, I had a friend in seminary who also would struggle with this. We get a test. We get a a paper we have to write. She immediately go and clean her entire dorm room. Step one, (laughs) right? Maybe that sounds familiar. I don't know. Uh, And so, like, it wasn't that she was not doing anything. She was just not doing the things she needed to be doing. Um, Now, in more classic representations of this, it is really funny because I have a hard time getting up in the morning. Um, It takes me a long time to wake up. And Anna, our blonde-headed middle child, is also somewhat in the image of her father and so Anna here's Anna just eyes rolling around in her head in the morning with her thumb and her blankie and the actual stuffed sloth that she asked for of her own accord <laughs> so here's Anna laying in bed with a sloth that like you know just kind of passes out it is the it's the most ironic thing um, so she has a stuffed sloth this child has a hard time getting up in the morning not forced upon her, uh, asked of her own accord. So, so there's my image. Um, there's also a book that when I realized, hey, this is something I need to go try to understand more fully about myself. Um, there's a Russian novel called Oblomov. It's about that thick. And the beginning of the book starts with Oblomov trying to get out of bed. And by the end of the novel, he hasn't. Now, it takes a good writer to write that much and still have something <laughs> worth listening to, right? But there's, there's all these intentions. There's all these different things you could do. It's not that there's just nothing. It's just the possibilities are so enormous he can't actually take a step forward and get out of bed and do something. Last week, we talked about stepping off the front porch. We just have to, we have to go. We have to answer this call to adventure. Um, and so... Sloth is something I'm, I'm trying to understand in myself. I will have a task to do for the week. I'm going to get this done this week. And then I find myself doing so many other things instead of the thing I need really to do, the, the visit I need to make. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll go read some chapter in some book. Right? So sloth, as you sort it out, um, is ultimately, if you go far enough, sloth is a cynicism especially as it pertains to Lent, that there's really no point. Why actually struggle during Lent? Why actually pay attention to the sadness? Why actually try to do anything differently or try to grow in any way? Because it's not going to make that much of a difference. It's a cynicism that your efforts aren't worth it. So let's just be slothful. Let's just do whatever we want, right? It leads directly into this next one, which is idle curiosity. Another way it's translated is faint heartedness. You're just like, you don't have that much ability to commit to something. Uh, or your curiosity is idle, so you're just checking out all these things. The way that this synod, if nothing actually matters, if, if, it, if you're, what you do with your life, the habits you formed, the ways that you engage with God or don't, the ways that you read Scripture or don't, the ways that you pray or try to grow in prayer or don't, if ultimately it doesn't matter, then we can just be entertained, which is most of our lives. Who all watches too much TV? Everybody who all gets on their phones too much and scrolls too far everybody it's idle curiosity and you honestly we're just being preyed upon by people who make money from that right the reason your facebook feed doesn't have an end to it that's it's an eternal scrolling feed that you never reach the bottom of it's a bottomless pit is because when you keep going, they show more advertisements and make money. So really, like we're not actually in control. If cynicism, if if nothing means anything, then just give yourself to everything. Just dance here and there and get distracted and be entertained. And and then one day we wake up and realize that we're at death's door. And what did I do with my life? In fact, idle curiosity has been described as the death of the soul. Because you wake up sometime and you realize it's all been a waste. You've entertained ourselves to death. Which leads naturally into love of power. If things are meaningless, and by way of idle curiosity, my stomach, which is what the psalmist said, uh, is what leads me. My desires to be entertained, to be distracted, to enjoy all manner of different things that aren't actually purposeful or meaningful. If, that is, if I become the center of everything, then love of power actually is the next stage of this. It's not death of my soul. It's the death of people as people in my life. They actually just become people I begin to manipulate and try to control and get angry if they don't obey my every whim. So idle curiosity leads... The center of myself in the world leads to love of power over others, which in the end results in useless chatter. That's not just talking a lot about things that don't mean much. That's actually, uh, in a fundamental way, um, distorting and bending the image of God within us. We, among all creatures, are the only ones who can speak words. And so, bear within us the image of God who is the Word. The Word became flesh, and we as human beings bear the image of God, and so we can speak. God created things by speaking. We have the gift of language, of words, of communication. Let's say Matt goes home, opens the door, uh, goes in, and, and Meredith's sitting at a table, and he says, Meredith, I love you so much. That changed something, didn't it? That created a brightness, didn't it? Um, Let's say Matt comes to the church, knocks on the door, actually kicks it in. He says, "Michael, you nincompoop! You big oaf! What are you doing? You being slothful today?" I'm using a silly example, but think of something that, was really, that would be really mean, that would be really hurtful. What if Matt came and said, Michael, I don't love you at all. I, I hate you. Something, you know. Those words change things. Now, when you begin to use words out of cynicism that anything matters and you've made yourself the center of the world and you love power over others, suddenly idle chatter becomes propaganda, doesn't it? And suddenly we realize, whoa, this doesn't just apply to me, this applies to just humanity. Let's look at um, a philosophy similar to Marxism, right? Which has had some impact in the East, yeah? Uh, In places like Russia and Ukraine, handed down. No, this isn't stereotyping because Christianity has also had deep roots there and a continued influence. But Marxism says something like, religion is the, you know, is an opiate of the masses. There's no real meaning, right? There's no real correspondence with anything more. Eventually we'll just die and that'll be it. And anything else is just fake and pretend. It's an inner cynicism which leads to sloth, right? That anything matters at all. And so if that's the case, we can devolve into what? Just placing ourselves at the center of the world Idle curiosity, which leads to love of power and controlling other people or places, or trying to empower, take, and, and usurp other leaders and take things for ourselves. And then, how does that manifest itself? Ultimately, in propaganda, words that don't correspond with reality. I mean, it's, it's kind of relevant, this prayer written in the fourth century can look on the news and see all of these things happening and you can lament them right that there is such thing as war that there are such thing as lies that there is hurt and woundedness and separation of families and murder and all all these things we can look at that like Jesus and cry out oh Jerusalem Jerusalem and we can see each of those in our own hearts I can see it in mine which is why there's another part of the prayer we ask God to take all that. That's what Lent's about. Get rid of all these things so that instead you can give to me, Lord and Master, Lord and King, a spirit of chastity, humility, patience, and love. Chastity is a right correspondence of your head and your heart and your body. Um, it is not sloth where nothing matters. So why any border or boundary to any desire I might have? But chastity, and not just. we stereotype, you know, we jump immediately and we think chastity is like just a sexual thing. It's not. It applies to all of life. There are appropriate bounds to our lives. Chastity is actually asking for a right recognition of those things. Chastity, which leads to humility. Humility is just telling the truth, actually, and acknowledging it. Humility is to confess the truth. God is actually the one who is humble and who sees and tells the truth. Christ is humble enough that he takes the form of a servant because that is the form of love for others. Chastity, humility, patience. God is patient, the scriptures tell us. Not wanting any to be given to destruction, but that all might be saved. One who is patient is able to see the big picture. God can see not just where you are in the middle of your struggle, but can see you at your end. That final reality that you will come as you come to reflect Jesus in your life and to share union with him and where there's no need for any of that lamenting anymore because those things are gone. And that ultimately leads to what? Love. As these things are taken away, as we acquire chastity, humility, patience and love during Lent, that's where we end up. Now, a word of caution to myself and to you because I've used some external example to see how these things take shape, right? I use this example of Marxism or Russia and some of the uh, historic roots of different philosophies that could pertain to these things, but the end of the prayer catches me. And when I start doing this work in my own life, I'm quick to see it in other people. And man, I start ending up with pride instead of humility. I'm a little further ahead, I can see really but they're not even aware. They can't even recognize the tendency in themselves. Like the end of the prayer brings us back and says, grant that I might see my own sin and not condemn my brother. Lent ultimately in a world where everybody's chattering all the time and trying to get you to point fingers at everyone else in every other situation about why they're wrong, you're wrong, everything's wrong, bad, etc., Lent is for you to look at your own heart and to confess your own sin and not spend your days condemning everyone else like the news. That's the invitation. It's a bright sadness. And it results in the end with Easter life. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen.